The following audio is from Morningstar Baptist Church in Dayton, Ohio. For more information about Morningstar, visit MorningstarDayton.org. Amen. Let's pray this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, once again we come before you and just overwhelmed by your mercy of that song that we sang. Our prayer this morning for those of us who call upon you as, as our Savior, call upon you as our Lord, that we'll never lose that sense of wonder. And God, as we go to you today, as we look forward to the next few weeks of what you might have for us, who you might have for us to talk to, where you might have for us to go, God, help us to be so open, help us to be so tender and soft and ready because this is not a game, it's, there's eternities on the line. And because we love you. God, I just pray that you will break all of our hearts this morning. God, there's a lot of distractions today, even in my own life. God, there's just so much going on. And I just pray that you will just move me out of the way today. And that this will be nothing but you glorified and preached. And your word proclaimed powerfully this morning for your glory. And that your word will not return void today. God, we give it all to you. It's your time anyway. In Jesus' name, amen. If you got your Bibles, go to Luke chapter 15 this morning. Luke chapter 15. Today, if you can't tell, we're starting a new series called When Jesus Comes to Town. And what we're talking about over the next three weeks is really, it is leading up to Easter. It's leading up to probably the biggest day of all time other than Christmas Day. Christmas Day we, we use to... To, to mark the beginning of, you know, 2,000 years ago. And we separated time between B.C. and A.D., at least for a while. <laughs> but Easter is the day that changed everything for us. Easter is a big deal. And we're looking at when Jesus comes to town, like what, when Jesus showed up, especially these last few weeks of his life, leading up to that day, the triumphal entry when he rode into Jerusalem. And so I think, man, if you, if you tune in, if you lean in the next couple weeks, it, I'm, it's going to be challenging for you. It's, it's challenging for me. It's impactful for me. But I'm telling you, it literally could change your life, even as a believer. And today really is, is no different. Jesus on our passage today, he shows up in a city called Capernaum. Capernaum is like, we know I don't think it's that big of a deal, but when Jesus first came and started his ministry, he did it in his hometown of Nazareth. Remember, he was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth. And when he presented himself in the temple, in the synagogue that day in Nazareth, they, they literally drug him out and they were going to try to kill him. They rejected him. And so he left there and he went to Capernaum. And this was like now his adopted home. He, he lived there. He stayed there for a long In fact, this was the hub of his ministry. He would, he would stay here and kind of travel out, and he would circle back to Capernaum. And, and this is where he kicked off his ministry in Mark chapter 1 when he quoted uh, Scripture that day. And it's also the place where he, he met um, Peter and Andrew and James and John, and he called them to be his disciples. It's also where he called Matthew to be his disciples. So five of the disciples were called out of Capernaum. It's a big place for him. But when we get to Luke chapter 15, what's super interesting, okay, that's, that's a great geography lesson, but what does that have to do with anything? This is the last time he's going to be in Capernaum. 
The center of his ministry has centered around here in Capernaum, and this is the last time he's going to be there because a few days from now, from where we read in Luke chapter 15, he leaves there and he heads south and he goes through Jericho and he goes to Jerusalem. So just a few days from now, he's going to be starting that journey down to Jerusalem for the triumphal entry, and then we know what happens a week later after that when they crucify him and they nail him to a tree. So the intensity in his ministry right now, it's off the charts. Like, it's insane how much, I mean, he was already doing so much anyway. He's healing, he's talking, he's preaching, he, he's engaging people. But at this point, he knows this is his last chance for his adopted hometown. This is it. Like, this is a big deal for him. And he, like, this last little journey down towards Jerusalem, it's everything to him. When Jesus got to this town this day, he really, he literally turned this city upside down this day. When Jesus came to town, this is a big deal. And I want to kick off this series by, by unpacking this little small grouping of parables that if you read through it in Luke chapter 15, we don't understand the context of that. We miss a lot. These little nice little stories that are tucked away here in Luke chapter 15 that when we really understand what Jesus was trying to get at in these little parables, when we really understand they weren't told in isolation, they were told in a grouping. And when we understand what Jesus was really trying to say, it can and it really should change your life. And it can and it really should change my life. And I, by telling these parables, when Jesus showed up to Capernaum this day, he shook up the status quo. He wasn't holding anything back anymore. He wasn't trying to mask anything. It was all out there. It was in their face. And it really made the religious leaders mad when he spoke these parables. But it made them mad, but it brought help and hope to people who were so hungry for the truth. Who were so hungry for a relationship with God. So hungry to hear about who God really was. And in Luke chapter 15 Starting right at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus tells three parables back to back. He goes from one to the next to the last. But who is he talking to and what is he saying? And we have to understand this context. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples. They're on their way to Capernaum. And he stops on his way to Capernaum with his disciples and he tells them, he talks about the cost it was going to be to follow him. He says, look, if you're really going to follow me, like this is it, like we're winding down. And if you're really going to follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross. He tells him that in Luke chapter 14. And that's very interesting because he's going to go to Capernaum and just a few days to a week later, he's going to be carrying his own cross in Jerusalem. He says there's going to be a cost involved with this. And then we get to Luke chapter 15. When we get to 15, his audience totally changes. It goes from his disciples to something totally different. Look in verse 1. Luke chapter 15, verse 1, it says, All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. This is a different day. This isn't just a few of them from town coming out to hear Jesus. Luke 15, verse 1 says, All of them. <laughs> All of the broken, messed up, jacked up people in this town came to Jesus on this day when he came to town. They all just totally surrounded him. He's attracting all kinds of people, rich and poor. Religious leaders, tax collectors, prostitutes, thieves, bad people, good, it doesn't matter. Like they were all coming to Jesus. And look in verse 2 of chapter 15. Here's how we know that our audience changes from the disciples to these two groups of people. It says, and the Pharisees and the scribes, those are religious leaders, remember? 
They were complaining. They said, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. The religious experts are upset that Jesus is hanging out with sinners. And not just hanging out with them, but like everybody in this town has just surrounded Jesus. All these, what they would call unclean, bad people. They're upset that Jesus is with them. They're like, Jesus, you say that you're the Messiah. You say that you're God in the flesh. You say you're here to redeem and restore Israel. But if you're really God, wouldn't God want to hang out with us? Wouldn't God really want to hang out with us, those of us who are keeping the rules? Wouldn't God want to hang out with those of us who are making sure that we're nice and clean and above all that? Like surely if you're really God, you would be with us and not with these unclean, filthy people. But Jesus here has an audience. And in this audience are these religious elitists and the broken, messed up people. And it says in verse 3, it says, so he told them this parable. His main audience is the religious people who are upset with him, complaining about him. But also hearing him this day are all the sinners that have come out of this town to see Jesus. And Jesus tells this story, these three stories, and we're going to get to them in a minute. But I love how Jesus preaches. love how he teaches. He takes these stories and he weaves them together. And he knows how to capture an audience. He knows how to speak truth and he uses these stories. He's an amazing storyteller and he knows how to hook people in. He knows how to like set them up for the knockout punch. Not that Jesus went around punching people, but like he knows how to, how to get them in and then hit them with the truth. And the truth is in these stories that he's telling. And each one of these three parables that we're looking at, they build on each other. And they all talk about something that is lost. And I'll tell you the three things that are lost as long as you promise not to walk up and leave as soon as I tell them to you on the front end, okay? So the first thing he deals with is a lost sheep. Then he talks about a lost coin. Then he talks about a lost son. And maybe you've been around church before. Maybe you've been in services where, where you know, you've heard these preach. And you, you can. You can pull a sermon out of each one of these parables. But Jesus told these parables in a group because they're all tied together. So here's the first parable. Look in verse 4 of Matthew chapter 15. So he starts, he says, remember, he's talking to them, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and also the broken people. He says, what man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? And when he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. Now, I love this, okay, because he's talking to Pharisees and religious leaders. These guys are wealthy people. This isn't Joe Bob and his cousin. These are extremely elite, wealthy people. They've got a lot of money. They dress really nice. They've got nice clothes. They have nice houses. They're very important people in their community. And he looks at them and he says, hey, let's, let's just pretend you're a shepherd, okay. Now, these guys, in their mind, they're thinking, wait, what did he just call us? He just called us a shepherd? Like, what? No, 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 no. Shepherd are stinky, dirty people. We're above that. Like, come on, Jesus. Like, we don't deal with sheep. Like, they're everywhere. We get it. We need them for sacrifices and we eat them. But we pay people to handle sheep. We would never dirty ourselves with touching or dealing with sheep. Like, we're above that. So he kind of knocks them back a little bit. And imagine what they're thinking. And if I was, if I did have sheep and I had 100 of them and one of them left, there's no way I'm going camping in the woods. <laughs> To go find one sheep, forget that. Like that's, they're like, that's not going to happen. It doesn't make any sense to them. But he's reeling them in. 
He's knocking them off balance a little bit. Because then he goes straight to the next parable. Look in verse 8. He says, Or what woman who has ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house. Now, it doesn't mean she got a broom and sweeps the house. It means she tears her house apart, searching and search for it till she carefully finds it. Verse 9, and when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me because I have found the silver coin that I lost. Now, here's the deal. If the shepherding thing didn't really make them mad, now they might be a little more upset, okay? Because he went from talking about shepherds and calling them shepherds to talking about a woman, okay? And now they're like, wait a minute, like, that's, that, like, don't talk about a woman, right? Like, how dare you talk about a woman? And how dare you talk about a woman with money? Like, who gave that woman money anyway? Now, don't get mad at me. This is how they're thinking, okay? So don't be like, okay, our, no, this is, this is Pharisee. This is the, how they thought about this. In fact, there was a Jewish historian named Eidersheim, and Eidersheim wrote this. He said that Pharisees would pray this prayer, and their prayer went something like this. God, I thank you that I was not born a Gentile, a dog, or a woman, and in that order. Because it was better to be born a Gentile than be born a dog, and it was better to be born a dog than be born a woman. They have totally missed the mark on what a woman was and what God's view of women were, was, was, were. Anyway, you get what I'm saying. They totally lost sight of that. They messed it all up. In fact, uh, this Jewish historian says this. He says that there was a group of Pharisees that they referred to as the black and blue Pharisees. That they got a nickname black and blue. And here's why. Because these Pharisees, they understood that they weren't supposed to lust after a woman. And so what they did was instead of just working on their heart and saying, I need to make sure I'm not lusting after a woman, they took it really the opposite direction. So much so that if they were walking down a street and a woman walked in front of them, instead of controlling their heart, they would shut their eyes and keep walking and because they didn't want to look at her. And as they were walking, they would fall down or they would run into buildings and they would get bruised and they would call them the black and blue Pharisees because they would shut their eyes and fall into stuff, Okay. So these guys totally don't get it when it comes to women. They totally have missed the mark. And so now he's talking about a woman. And like, what? Like, you're talking about a woman. And who gave this woman money? And she loses the money. Of course she loses the money because you gave money to a woman. Like, why would you do that? That's what they do. And, again, not me. Okay? So the, but the hero in the story in this parable, the second one, is the woman. And now they're just like, what's this guy talking about? Like, where is he going with this? But here's the deal. There's a progression here. He's talking about sheep. The lowest on the economy, right? The lowest of the low. They're just sheep. And one of them's lost, but a shepherd goes to find it. And then money, and that's a little more important. And so they're kind of understanding a little. They're relating a little bit because they love money. In fact, in, in the next chapter, in chapter 16, Jesus says, you are lovers of money. And he's talking to the religious leaders. He says, you guys are so wrapped up in your money. But in both these cases, something's lost, but somebody goes to find it. The sheep gets lost, someone goes and finds it. A coin gets lost, someone goes and finds it. Now they're confused, they're irritated and bothered, but they're intrigued. Okay, what's this crazy guy going to say next? Like he called the shepherds, he talks about women, where's he going with that? Then he gets to the third parable, probably the most familiar of the three, and you've heard it before if you've been in church for any time. If you haven't, maybe this is the first time you hear it, but this one's called the parable of the lost son. You might have heard it as called the prodigal son. And in verse 11, he says, a man has two sons. 
So now he says, look, there's a certain man. He's got two sons. And this whole time Jesus is reeling them in, right? He's bringing these guys in. And now they're like, finally, like a story we can relate to. You're talking about a guy with sons. That's awesome. Like, all right, this is manly stuff. And not only one son, he's got two sons. And like, yeah, now you're speaking my language because they understand this. Like, this is important to them. So in that culture, to have a son is everything. To be able to have a son that you can invest in, a son that you can raise up, a son that you're going to teach to take over the family business one day. And you're going to teach him how to handle money. And you're going to teach him how to be important. And these guys, like, we're going to live vicariously through our sons. And so they get this, like, man, this is awesome. we got a story about men and boys. All right, this is good. And now they're leaning in. And they're captured by this story. Then we get to verse 12, all right? So Jesus keeps telling the story. He says, the younger of the son says to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. What's he saying? He's saying, Dad, I want my inheritance now. Like, I know one day you're going to die, but I can't wait. Like, I want this now. And remember, he's talking to these religious leaders, and apparently he's talking about these two sons, and one of them's rebellious. One of them's not so good. And he goes to the dad and says, I want my inheritance right now. I don't want to wait for you to die. I want it now. Basically saying to his dad, look, um, I would be happier if you were dead right now. I know that hurts, dad, but like if you were dead now, I'd have money. And I'd be able to do my own thing. So if you were just dead now, I could get my money. So can you just give it to me now? In other words, what he's saying is, dad, to me, you are dead right now. Because I'm not looking for a relationship with you. I'm looking for just the money. This would be the height and the epitome of dishonoring your parents. To go to your dad at this point and say, Dad, I want my inheritance now because i just really rather you be dead. And these Pharisees, remember these guys, they've memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. They've got them memorized, called the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They know all five of them by heart. They can quote it to you. And as soon as Jesus gets to this part of the story, their mind immediately goes back to the book of the law, Exodus. Ten commandments. And one of the commandments is what? Honor your father and your mother. And they know that honoring your father and your mother was important and dishonoring your father and mother could possibly be a death sentence depending on how severe the dishonoring was. And so in their minds, they're thinking, all right, man, yes, a judgment story. Finally, Jesus is going to put all these bad people in their place that have been surrounded. He is going to call them out. We're going to hear this dad's going to slap his son in the next week. Man, he's going to box his ears around. He's going to, he's going to take everything away. Like We're going to see some awesome justice and judgment going on. Maybe they're thinking we haven't heard a good judgment story in a while. Yes. But then the second part of verse 12, look at it. It says, so he distributed the assets to him. So his father actually gave him the money. And they're probably thinking, wait a minute, what? (laughs) This kid totally just put his dad down, totally just disrespected his dad, and the dad just gives him the money? Like he doesn't even hurt him a little bit? Like he totally just gives it to him? Look in verse 13. It says, not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had, and he traveled to a distant country, a far country, where he squandered his estate in foolish living. Some translations use that word foolish. Some of them use riotous. Some of them use crazy. Some use wild. The idea is he wasted his money. (laughs) He wasted it. 
all the money, with crazy, wild living. He didn't buy anything of value with it is what that passage means. What it means is he spent it on parties, <laughs> on women. You find that out later from the older brother. Like he didn't buy a piece of property and, and, and settle down and farm it. He didn't buy a business and try to run it. He just wasted all of it. Just spent it on junk. And now, all of a sudden, he's got nothing left. Look in verse 14. After he had spent everything, a severe famine, think Great Depression, struck that country, and he had nothing. If you have your Bibles open and you mark in your Bible, you might want a little box in that little area that says he had nothing. It was all gone. Nothing. Not only did he not have any money, now he has no friends. Now he has no family. He has no home because he, he wasn't smart enough to buy a house or buy a place where he could sleep. He's got nothing. And in the middle of having nothing, it's a, it's a depression. It's a famine. Verse 15 says, Then he went to work for one of those citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Verse 16 says, he longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. Now look at me. I want you to lean in for just a minute. I want you to get this. Remember who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to these religious leaders who are upset that Jesus is hanging out with broken, messed up people. But also within hearing distance of this parable are the broken, messed up people. And Jesus has a message for both groups of people. And so he kind of goes on a little, little journey here in this story because he wants everybody to understand how God interacts with us when we're broken, when we're messed up. He wants us to see it's, 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 it's all about religious leaders, but it's, all, it, it's to the religious leaders, but it's all about the religious leaders and the sinners and how God deals with us when we're in a far country. How God dealt with us when we didn't have a relationship with him. And how God sends these little alarms. <laughs> how God will send indicators and God will try to get a hold of our heart. And I don't know um, how many of you guys use an alarm clock to wake up in the morning. I know some of you guys probably just pop right awake first thing in the morning. I, I can't. <laughs> and when you have an alarm clock, it has to be a very annoying sound, doesn't it? Otherwise, you're not going to move. If you wake up to the oceans going and stuff, like you're not getting out of bed. You're going back to sleep. When I was growing up, I didn't have an alarm clock. I had a dad. <laughs> um, and I, my bedroom at my house is kind of funny. It was, I think it was originally a dining room area of the house. It had like a pocket sliding door. It was about the size of a double-sized closet. And that was my room. And so in the morning when my dad would come, he would slide that sliding door open and start singing at the top of his lungs. The most annoying, and my dad's not a singer, by the way. I love him, but he does not sing. Most annoying song ever, every morning to wake me up. And I'd be like, just make it stop. I would get out of bed just to make it stop, like just to get out of there. Right? My kids can probably relate to that, right? Like, Dad, just stop, okay? But it has to be annoying. It has to drive us to an action. And so when God, when we, we're in a far country, when God's trying to get a hold of our life, he reacts to us the same way. And God sends some alarms to this young man to try to get him to come to his senses, to try to get him to, hey, come back. The first alarm is when the money runs out. I mean, that should have been a clue, right? I've got nothing left. I have no house. I have no home. I have no friends. I got no money. Let me go back home. But he doesn't. He just hits snooze. So the next thing God does is a famine hits. This is a pretty loud alarm, and food and jobs are hard to come by. He still doesn't go home. 
Then he finds himself working for a man feeding pigs. And as a Jewish young man, this is a no-no. They, they can't eat pigs. They're not supposed to touch pigs, let alone work in a pigsty with pigs because just to be around the pig makes you unclean. That should have, he should have woke up one morning in this pigsty going, where am I at? Like, what am I doing? But he still doesn't. It takes the next thing to the point where he's starving. He has nothing to eat. And he sees the slop that they're feeding pigs. You know what they feed pigs? Any farmer? Trash. <laughs> okay? And they collect it for a long time and they throw it out there for the pigs. And he starts to look at that and say, that looks delicious. <laughs> like, I'm hungry. And it says he, he it, it, I love how it says he longed to eat that. He was looking at it going, man, if I could only have just a little bit of that, that would be awesome. But it says no one would give him anything. Which means the man he was working for looked at him and said, don't you dare touch the slop. That's for the pigs. Those pigs are more important to me than you are. Go find your own food. Alarm after alarm after alarm. He hit snooze, he hit snooze, he hit snooze. And every time God sends that alarm in this story, the next alarm gets greater in intensity than the one before. And we do the same thing. God draws our hearts and he draws us and he tries to draw us to him. He tries to draw us to him and, and we hit snooze. <laughs> I got this. Five more minutes. Goes off again. I got this. Five more minutes. And the more we hit snooze in our life, the more we push God away, the farther down the road to self-destruction we get. And this young man at this point has hit rock bottom. He's unclean because he's been around filthy pigs. He's unclean because of the choices that he's made, the things that he's done. He's homeless. He's poor. He's starving. And the point is not necessarily that he's self-destructed. You know what the point of this, this is? Is that he didn't have to get there. Remember, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders who are upset because he's hanging out with broken, messed up people who are in a far country, who are away from God. And the point is, they didn't have to get there. Verse 17, look at what it says. It says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, and he starts to rehearse this, 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 this repentance thing in his heart. He says, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. In other words, I've sinned against God, I've sinned against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. And he goes through this mental rehearsal of repentance, and he understands my sin is what got me here. My choices is what led me to this place. I can't blame anyone else. I'm eating pig slop because of me. And he realizes that at this point, he has no right and no claim to sonship with his father anymore. He understands at this point, he's so broken. He understands where his sin has brought him. He realizes that he has given up his chance of being a son with his father. He has forsaken that. He has put it away. I am done. I, I can't go back and demand to be made a, a son again. I, I gave that up. But I can go back and be a slave. Maybe my dad will hire me as a slave because I can't be his son anymore. I told him he's dead to me. 
And if he's dead to me, then I'm dead to him. And so I can't go back to him. But maybe I can go back to him as a slave and as a worker. I'm going to go back to my father because he has servants eating better than I do. And they're not starving. And I'm going to ask him to make me a servant. Because if I'm a servant, I'm better off than I am now. Church, do we realize that this is true repentance? This is what repentance looks like. I'm in this place because of my sin. I'm broken because of my sin. It's nobody else. I can't blame my parents. I can't blame society. I can't blame the devil. It's all because of me. And I have no right to go to God, but I'm going to beg out to God. I'm going to cry out to God and beg him for mercy anyway. This is repentance. Someone who's been humbled and he gets it. Look at verse 20. It says, so he got up and he went to his father. One of the most beautiful passages in Scripture we're about to read. You might want to mark it in your Bible. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He wasn't filled with wrath. He wasn't filled with rage. He wasn't filled with unforgiveness. All of the things that the Pharisees and the religious leaders were wanting Jesus to be like, Jesus is showing them that's not God. He was so excited when a lost child was coming home and he had compassion. Look what he says he did. He ran. He threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him. And look, I know some of us, some of you, you're you're struggling and you're you're dealing with, with prodigals in your own life. And you long for this day. You look forward to this day, the day that your child that you know has walked away from your teaching and walked away from God, and you long for the day that you'll see them coming from afar off. And I promise you, I know what you'll do. You will run to them and wrap your arms around them and kiss them and love them. Because that's what our Father does for us. And until then, let me encourage you, keep looking and keep praying. This young man, when he left that pigsty, he probably had barely any clothes on at that point. He lost everything. He smelled like pigs, covered in filth, no shoes, but he came home the way he was. And when he was a great way off, the father ran to him and embraced him and loved on him. And you know, you know the father smelled the pigs on him. That's a very distinct smell. You know he could smell him in the reek and the stench of a pigsty. He's covered in filth. The father knew as he got close, my son is unclean. He's done things he shouldn't have done. He's been places he should never have been. But it didn't matter to him. Verse 21, check this out. The son said to him, Father, remember he rehearsed this. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The very next verse, I love this, verse 22, that word but, which means the father interrupted him. He didn't even let him get the speech out, but the father told his servants. He he, he hugged his son already, he loved on his son. His son tries to start spilling his heart and pouring out his heart to his dad. Dad, I've sinned against you and against heaven. And he's taking the next breath to ask him to make him a slave. And before he can even get the words out, the father says, hey, go get the fatted calf and kill it. 
go bring me a robe, go bring me a ring, go bring me some shoes because my son who was dead is now alive, who was lost is now found, and he never got the words out. That's the God that we serve. That's the God who loves us. He said, go bring a robe and put it on him. I'm going to clothe him. This guy was filthy, covered in pig slime and, and, and nastiness, and he smelled, and he probably mostly didn't have any clothes on. He has no shoes on. And the father said, bring a robe, the best robe, and we're going to wrap it around him. You know why? Because he wanted to show him, look, I'm going to wrap you in my righteousness. Because if somebody walked down the road right now, I don't want you feeling inferior. And I don't want you feeling broken. I want them to be able to look at you. And when they look at you, even though underneath that robe, you're filthy and you're broken and you're messed up, that robe is mine. And when they look at you, they'll see my robe. They won't see your filthiness. And this is a perfect illustration of what God does to us the moment we give our life to Jesus Christ. God says, I love you and I know you're broken and I know that you're sinful and I know that you called out to me for salvation. And because of my son Jesus and his death on the cross, I'm going to take his righteousness and I'm going to wrap it around you so that when people see you, when I see you, I don't see the messed up pigsty. I don't see the choices you've made. I don't see the places you've gone, the people you've been with. All I see is Jesus. We get to get clothed with that. How amazing it is to serve a God who, when he looks at us, sees the righteousness of his son. Then he says, bring a ring and put it on his finger. That was a big deal. The ring, just like now, this ring symbolizes my standing with Mandy. Legally, my standing with Manny, both in the eyes of God and the eyes of the government, I am married to her. And this ring symbolizes my standing and my status. And that day was no different. For his dad to say, bring a ring and put on his finger. You know what that said? He said, you're my son. And even though you turned your back on being my son, even though you turned your back on being part of this family, you are now part of this family. Even though you gave it up, even though you walked away from it, even though you have no right to claim sonship anymore, because I'm the father, I can grant sonship to you. And what God says to us, when we come to God in our brokenness, at that moment of salvation, not only does he wrap this robe of righteousness around us, but he gives us the ring of salvation saying, you are mine even though you don't deserve it and my mercy and my grace is poured out to you even though you're broken and even though you turn your back on me even though you've sinned you've come to me through my son Jesus Christ and now you're part of the family and for all eternity we are part of the family of God Jesus came to town that day and he shook things up and then the father said bring some sandals and put on his feet this guy walked from the far country barefoot. He had to give up his shoes when he worked for the guy, the pig farmer, because he was making himself a voluntary servant of that guy. And a lot of times back in those days, they would take your sandals or your shoes and what covered your feet to keep you from running away if you were a slave or a servant of someone. And he walked all the way home barefoot. And the dad gave him a robe and he gave him a ring and he brought some shoes. And if we don't understand what the meaning of that is, we might miss something really cool. And here's what, it, what he was saying. Remember the son's speech, what he was going to say to the father? 
Make me a servant. Servants didn't wear shoes. So when the father said, bring me the shoes and we're going to put it on his feet, what the father was saying, you're not a servant. You're my son. Church is a big deal. Jesus was talking to these religious leaders who wanted judgment and justice and punishment for all these broken people around him. And Jesus is saying, no. Like, I came to give them life. I came to give them the choice, the opportunity to give their life to me. I'm going to die for them. In fact, a few days from now, I'm walking all the way to Jerusalem. And I'm going to go in one day. They're going to celebrate me. And a few days later, they're going to kill me. And I'm going to be buried. And I'm going to come back to life for these people because they're broken. says, this is what I'm about. Working among the unclean pigs reflected the lives of those designated as sinners by these Pharisees. They were unclean and defiled since they violated the law. They didn't follow their purity regulations. But I want you to go back to the, the, the order of this, right? First story, lost sheep, but the shepherd went looking for the sheep. Second story, a lost coin, but the woman went looking for the coin. First story, it was one out of 100, 1%. Went missing, yet the shepherd left and went and found it. Second story, one out of ten, ten percent was missing. Third story, most valuable possession of all, a son. Two of them. One of them went missing, 50%. Who went looking for the lost son? I don't know if you've ever read that in the progression that Jesus has it here. The most precious thing missing and no one goes looking. We know the father was waiting every day on the front porch, watching down the same road his son left on, waiting for him to come home every day. Where was the older brother? Jesus was talking to these religious leaders, and they're upset with him for hanging out with sinners, and he tells these stories of lost items and someone going and looking, but when it comes to the son, no one went looking. The younger brother runs off. The famine hits. Did the older brother even stop and say, I wonder how my brother's doing? Is he okay? Where's he at right now? Did he ever walk down that road that his brother left in to see if he could find him? Instead, the older brother was self-righteous. And he was saying that I've never violated my, my dad's rules. I've been here all the time. And dad, we'll see that in a minute. He's like, dad never gave me a party. The, the, the religious leaders had the same sense of entitlement. They were convinced that they were the law-abiding minority and only they should be getting the pat on the back and only they should have been having Jesus spend time with them. They didn't think of fellowship with God as a gift. They thought of fellowship with God as something they had to earn. So the son comes home, the dad throws him a party, and the older brother's out working in the fields, and he hears a bunch of music, and he comes back up to the house, and he asks one of the servants, hey, what's going on? They said, your brother's back, and he's alive, and we're throwing him a party. And what we see is the older brother didn't even go inside. He wouldn't even go in, and the father goes out and begs him to go in and celebrate. He said, as soon as, in fact, the older brother says, as soon as your son comes home, you throw him a party, but you never throw me anything. And the dad comes out in verse 31 and says, Son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we, have to, we had to celebrate and rejoice because this your brother's, a brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. 
father was always looking for the son. Who knew that? Who knew more than anyone else that the father was on the front porch watching for his lost son every day? The older brother. On his way out to the field every day, older brother saw dad sitting on the front porch. Every night, older brother saw dad weeping and praying and crying over his lost son. The older son saw every day his father was waiting and watching. He knew his dad wanted his brother to come home more than anything, and he would welcome him home no matter what. But what kept the younger brother in the far country longer was probably the idea of, is my dad even going to accept me? Would he even want me back? And the older brother knew exactly the answer to that question. The father wants him back of hope and restoration, but he never said anything. The parable ends with an invitation for the older brother to come to the party. And that's how the parable ends. But the parable might have ended, but that wasn't the end of the message. Because the message that day that Jesus wanted everybody to hear was he was inviting the religious leaders and the sinners that day to respond to the message. The message to the prodigal that day, those that are standing around him, was come home. The message to the sons and daughters was to go get them. So who's your younger brother? Who are you surrounded by that's in the far country? Who are you passing every day that keeps hitting the snooze on God's alarm in their life? Are we content and just waiting for God to throw us a party in here? To pat us on the back? Or are we going to go get them? Jesus comes to town that day. And he's surrounded by sinners and broken people. And he tells this amazing story of God's love and forgiveness and acceptance. And for some of you this morning, it's time to go home. For some of you this morning, it's time to realize that God's not here to strike you down. He's not here to judge you. There's still time. He's here waiting with open arms for you to come home. And for those of us who already have a relationship with Jesus, it's time to go get them. And it's time to give them that message. Let me have you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning for just a moment. There's really only two people here today. There's those of us there in the far country because we've never given our life to Jesus. And there's those of us who have. And just like that day in Capernaum when Jesus showed up, there were two types of people there that day too. There were people who understood and knew the message. And there were those who were just so hungry for answers and so hungry for hope, just longing to be restored. For those of you who are in the far country this morning, maybe this morning this story was about you. Can I talk to you for just a second? What's keeping you from getting up and coming to Jesus? 
What is that alarm that keeps going off in your heart that you keep just trying to silence because you're just not ready? I hope you know this morning, if this is you in the far country, that God is waiting with open arms. Not to punish you and not to to ridicule you, but to clothe you, to cover up the brokenness, to put a ring on your finger saying that you're part of my family, to give you an eternal life and an eternal hope. Some of us have been lied to about who God is and it keeps us from coming because we're, we're kind of like we've heard the message of the Pharisees in our life saying, no, 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 you don't want to do that. But this morning, if you're here this morning and you're in the far country, Jesus died for you. And he wants to give you a new life. He wants to make you brand new and give you a hope that you've never experienced before. For those of you, maybe this morning you're safe in the Father's house. Then it's time for us to go get those who aren't. We read our Bibles. We're here on Sunday. We hear of God's love. We know God's waiting for those in our life that don't know him. It's time to go get them. The first parable, someone went looking for what is lost. It was a sheep. The second parable, someone went looking for the lost coin. But who is looking for the lost brother? When Jesus comes to town, things change. This was a big deal that day. And today might be a big deal for you. Maybe you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus. Look, in just a moment, we're gonna stand and we're gonna sing a verse of, of response and I'll be down here in the front. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to share with you how you can know Jesus is yours, how you can have eternal life through him. Maybe this morning God's laying on your heart, someone you know is in the far country, you know they're out there, you know that they're not coming home, maybe this morning you can come and pray for them. You can come right down here and kneel at these steps, you can kneel right there at your chair, you can pray right there while you're standing, but don't leave today hearing this message of forgiveness and hope and restoration that God the Father loves, and don't leave here today if God's laid someone in your heart and just walk out like it's no big deal. Who do you know? Maybe you want to come down and pray this morning for your own prodigal. Maybe you want to come and pray for someone God's laid on your heart. I don't know. But believers, it's time for us to go find them. And we're going to pray here in just a moment, and I'll be here. I'd love to talk with you. Introduce you to the Savior. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for everything you've done and for your word and for the power of your love and your forgiveness. And God, I just pray for those this morning that are far away, that they've never given your life to you. I pray that this morning will be the day that they step into new life. They go from being dead to being alive, from being lost to being found. And I pray for every believer here this morning. God, every one of us, that we are all surrounded by prodigals. We are all surrounded by, by the younger brother and the younger sister. Help us to tell them the message that God's waiting you're waiting. What a beautiful story. And that can be our story. God, we love you. We'll give you the praise and glory for all of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with me this morning and worship? Thank you for listening to today's message. If you have any questions about Morningstar Baptist Church or today's message, 
Visit MorningstarDayton.org and choose Contact Us.